0: text for today's sermon can be found in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these, these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things?
1: Let's pray together. Father, our heart's desire is that those who are not born of God, not regenerated, would be born again through the living and abiding Word, which is the Gospel, which we preach. So come and cause new birth, and would you grant that those who are born again would understand more biblically, more fully, more deeply, how it happened, so that you would get more praise and they would be more stable and unwavering in their walk with Christ. And then, Lord, across this congregation, would you do things that I can't even imagine to ask you to do, needs that were brought in here that we have sung about, we'll now preach about without my even knowing it, and that you can touch and help with. So God, come, let there be healing, let there be humbling, let there be encouraging, let there be reconciling, let there be guidance, let there be supply. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I'm going to focus on verse 8 and talk about the freedom of the Spirit in the new birth, the free will of the wind in verse 8, and how the Spirit, like the wind, brings about the new birth. The reason for focusing on verse 8 is because I preached on these verses, these 10 verses, twice. 17 months ago and uh, so they're available online and and I'm not going to walk in any detailed way through them again when that happened so recently but it seemed good to me that even though we will take verse 8 which I didn't spend a lot of time on and and uh, try to milk it for all it's worth worth in this message we should put it all in context so let me give you uh, six summary statements of what is in verses 1 to 10, and then look at verse 8 in that context. Okay? Number one, first summary statement. In verses 1 to 3, Nicodemus was a religious man, but not born again. Implication, you can be a religious person and not be born again. In verse 2, Jesus says, Or Nicodemus says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. So he's recognizing that God is at work in Jesus. And then in verse 7, Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. So it's possible to see God working in Jesus and not have God working in you. Number two, verses 3 and 5 and 7 all make plain that we must be born again in order to see and enter the kingdom of God. Verse 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So this is not an optional religious experience. like. Well, that's nice for some people, but um, I, I approach God other ways. I experience other things than the new birth. If you don't experience the new birth, you will perish. You will remain under the wrath of God, talked about in verse 36 of this chapter. Number three, verse five. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The reference to water there is not a reference to baptism. And I argued for that in great detail in one of those messages. It's an allusion to Ezekiel 36:24 and the point is that just like the spirit gives life in this process, there is also a washing or a cleansing of heart and sin that has to happen as well. We need new life and we need cleansing and those are both signified in that verse. You can go to that sermon and see the arguments for that position. Number four, verse six. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So what he means there is that when we're born the first time, merely human nature begets merely human nature. It doesn't have spiritual life. All human beings are sinful. All human beings are fallen. All of us are dead in trespasses and sins. And when we have babies, we have dead babies. They are spiritually not living. Flesh begets flesh. Spirit begets spirit. Your spirit comes alive when a second birth happens through the Holy Spirit. And that's necessary for everybody. If we don't have a second birth then we remain simply fallen, spiritually dead human nature. That's flesh. And if the Spirit moves and we are born again, then we, our spirits live and we are spirit and not just flesh. Number six, the last summary statement. When we were uh, working on this passage 17 months ago, we went over to 1 John. And drew in some very important supplementary material and I want to give you two of those verses from 1 John you don't need to look them up if you don't want to 1 John 5 11 and 1 John 5 1 to draw in two things about where this new life that the Spirit gives comes from and how, how you get it what's the channel through which the Spirit brings it to you here's verse 11 of 1 John 5 God gave us eternal life. That that happens in the new birth. God gave us new eternal life, and this life is in his Son, which implies this. Somehow, the way the Spirit brings life into our deadness is by uniting us to the Son, and the Son of God, Christ, has life. The Spirit doesn't do this apart from Jesus. The Spirit moves us into union with Christ, and in union with Christ, we have his life, eternal life. Now, here's verse 1 of chapter 5 of 1 John. Everyone who believes has been born of God. Everyone who believes has been born of God. So the second thing to say about how this happens from 1 John 5 is that not only does the Spirit move us into union with Christ, He does it through faith. If you are believing, you have been born of God. The Holy Spirit moved upon you. He brought you through the awakening of faith into union with the Son so that life was yours. And all that happens just like that. You can't take it apart. You can't, you can't say, well, there's a peace and there's a peace and there's a peace. Like there's a, there's a Holy Spirit peace, there's a Jesus peace, there's a faith peace. It's all one. So if you're born again, you are believing today. And if you're believing today, you were born again. That's the summary that we spent two sermons unpacking. Let me confirm that last point with you from the gospel itself. I, I don't want to just jump over to the epistle and say, John, in the gospel, isn't saying that. You might want to, if you're still at John 3, turn back a page to chapter 1, verse 12. Very familiar passage, but now hear it in this particular context. John one twelve and 13. But... To all who did receive him. So this is those who now receive Christ for who he really is. Receive him. Those who did receive him, comma, explanatory phrase following. That is, who believed in his name. That's what it means to receive him. So, So receiving and believing mutually explain each other. To receive is to believe. To believe is to receive. Who believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God. And then he goes back and he explains how that came about. Who were born. This is the new birth now. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So the receiving of Christ, the believing in Christ, and the getting of the right to have a place in his family came through the new birth through the work of God causing us to be born again. That's the context. Now here we are at verse 8 for the rest of our time. What Jesus is doing in verse 8 is comparing the work of the Spirit of God to the wind. So he just said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So he just said... The spirit is the agent of God by which we are born again. Now, he draws out implications of the wind. There's a little play on words here, by the way. In Greek, the word for wind and spirit are the same word. And so when he says the wind blows where he wills, uh, it's the same word as spirit but he's still making the connection because he uses the word blow. So he's thinking wind like spirit is blowing. Look, uh, let me just bring in a verse from chapter six here. In chapter six, it says in verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. So I'm just bringing that in to underline what we see there in verse 6 of chapter 3, that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. So it's the Spirit, the Spirit gives life, 663, the Spirit gives life. That which is born of the Spirit in giving life is now living Spirit. We were dead and now the Spirit gives life and we're alive. Now what does verse 8 teach us about how that happens? That's what I'm after. I believe that I am born again. So what have I to learn here? Massive amounts to learn. Because I, 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 my, many people are born again who've never even heard of the phrase born again. Do you know that? It is possible to be born again and have heard it all from, and be saved through Romans 5. Romans 5 doesn't talk about new birth. You may learn five years later that you were born again when you believed in Jesus. Well, that's a good thing to learn. To know what happened to you because praises will rise and <clears throat> you'll understand better who you are. So don't panic tonight if, you, if you're a lover of Jesus and this is all new to you. Like, ah, maybe it hasn't happened yet. Well, I doubt that if, if you're trusting Christ and loving Christ. But others of you may need to pay a special attention because God's going to do it for you now. So here we are at verse 8. How does it happen? Let's read verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, where it wills. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So he's comparing the wind and how it comes and goes and makes a sound, but you can't see it, and produces effects, but you can't see it. You just see the effects and um, compares that to the Spirit. Four comments about verse 8. Number one, the wind blows where it wills. What does that mean? like he's treating the wind as though it has a will. It means that um, it's got a mind of its own. You don't make the wind go anywhere. I don't think till the 21st century we've been able to do that. You know, We may see a cloud here and there and try to control the weather a little bit, but they certainly couldn't in that day, and I don't think we're very good at it today, otherwise we'd stop. Katrinas and we'd stop tornadoes and we'd stop river floodings through meltings that come with the wrong kind of wind, and we can't do any of that we 're just helpless before the wind. It has a mind of its own. it goes where it it will. Um, let me just point out a little princess here. <coughs> I think I should refer to the spirit as he instead of it. Um, In Greek, the word for spirit is neuter because gender in Greek is not related to the sexuality of the object. Nouns are either feminine, masculine, or neuter regardless of what they're referring to. So it's a neuter noun, but interestingly, in at least three verses in the Gospel of John, a masculine pronoun is used to refer to the neuter spirit, which is grammatically wrong and theologically right. So those would be 1426, 1521, and 1613 at least. So if you hear me talking about it, the wind, and he, the spirit it's because I'm I'm thinking you you are a person I can quench you I can grieve you I can delight in you I can relate to you the Holy Spirit is a person of the Godhead and there is one God Father Son and Holy Spirit all persons so first observation the wind blows where it wills meaning it has a mind of its own it's free that's why gave the title to this message, The Free Will of the Wind. Second observation. And you hear the sound, and you hear its sound. That means that it does have some effects that impinge upon our senses, in this case, the ear. You can't see the wind. How do you know there is such a thing as wind? Sound, uh, leaves stirring in the grass, branches flopping, You know, he's dust getting stirred up, pressure on your face, very cold in Minnesota, called wind chill. So we know the wind exists not because we see it, but because it has these effects on the world. And that's, he's going to draw the, the analogy out to the Holy Spirit. You can't see the Holy Spirit, but you can see his effects, especially in the new birth. So that's the second observation. Third observation, Jesus says, but you do not know where it comes from. Now this emphasizes the fact that y- you don't control its origin. You don't know. You don't even know its origin, let alone control its origin. And those words "you do not know" surely are meant to introduce a mystery here. In other words, there are things about this. You just won't know. There are things about the new birth you won't know. You won't be able to figure out. (coughs) It's God's work. And when God does a miracle like Lazarus rising from the dead, then we don't know how he did that. He just did it. We saw that Lazarus walked out. And once I was dead and wasn't believing and didn't enjoy Jesus and found no pleasure in reading scriptures and didn't want to go to church, now... I see and I'm alive and it's my highest joy and he's my chief treasurer that's a mystery. Let me underline that with a passage from Mark I'll read it to you this is Jesus talking about the kingdom of God now the reason it's relevant to go to this passage is twofold one because of what in the parable, they don't know. And two, the fact that the kingdom of God is referred to because right here in this text says you have to be born again in order to see the kingdom of God or you have to be born again to enter the kingdom of God. So listen to this. This is Mark 4.26. The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps. He rises night and day. And the seed... Sprouts and grows. He knows not how. Now that's a picture of me doing what I'm doing right now. I'm sowing the seed of the Word. And I'll go home in a little while and go to bed. And then I'll get up. And God will do something. I know not how. That's what the Word does. When the Holy Spirit moves in lives, the Word of God becomes life-giving. changes people. We don't know how. So the new birth has a mystery component in it, for sure, in those words, but you do not know where it comes from. Fourth observation. You do not know where it goes. You don't know where it comes from, and now he adds, you don't know where it goes. You can't determine its origin, and you can't determine its destination. He is free. He, the Spirit, has a free will. He goes out of where he wants and toward where he wants, and we don't know it, and we can't control it. He is free. The wind moves in mysterious ways. It has a will of its own, so to speak. It comes and it goes by its own laws, not by our laws. We do not determine the laws of the wind. It just has its own. And so does the Holy Spirit. The wind is free. The Holy Spirit is free. That's the analogy. So now now comes the comparison. So, we're second half of verse 8. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. A little bit odd the way he says that. Literally in this way is everyone who is born of the spirit. You you've heard how the wind works now he said you've heard how the wind works how the wind has a free will how it goes, it comes, makes a sound. You've heard all that. Now, I'm saying in the same way, those who are born of the Spirit are. They come into being. That's the way I understand this connection. In the same way. That, that little word, so, is not a logical so. It's the same so as John 3.16. For God so loved the world. A few verses later. That means he's, he did it in that way. He did it in that way. By sending his son. Here it's so. namely through all that freedom and all that mystery, in the same way are those who are born of God. They come into being that way. So, what's the main lesson in the comparison? Here's the way I would put it. We don't cause the Spirit to bring about the new birth any more than we make the wind to blow. Say that again. The, the main lesson in the comparison is we do not cause the Spirit or make the Spirit, constrain the Spirit, compel the Spirit to bring about the new birth any more than we can cause the wind to blow. That's the main point of verse 8's comparison. The spirit's will is decisive, not our act of will. So if you think now who, what's the decisive act of willing in the new birth? The answer is, the spirit's will is decisive in the act of new birth. To be sure get this right to be sure, at the moment of new birth, our will moves. At the moment of new birth, in that instant, that mystery instant, our will moves. It moves toward the Christ that we see as compelling. It moves to receive Him. It moves to love Him. It moves to trust Him. Because in that instant we were given eyes to see and a life to long. And, and in that moment, without any. Separation in time, our will is moving, but the decisive mover is the Spirit. He gets the ultimate credit for our moving. Changes happen in us. There are perceptible effects. You hear the wind, you hear it. You hear a baby crying when he's born. Oh, life! It's life! I love that cry. The main effect of the wind, the Spirit, is that we are made spiritually alive. We're born again. And now our wills move with that life. Move with life because we're made Alive. That's what living things do. They move. They move to receive Christ. They move to believe on Christ. But God, the Spirit, is the decisive mover and moves our will. We call this, let me put some names on this. this, this is, we're talking about doctrine here, okay? You don't, you don't need names on doctrine in order to understand them, but sometimes it helps. What we're talking about here is um, a term like sovereign grace or irresistible grace. Have you ever heard those terms? That's what we're talking about here sovereign grace or irresistible grace. Far better to learn your theology from texts without knowing names than to learn names from theology books without knowing texts. So I'm just, this is kind of incidental, the names I'm putting on this here. This is sovereign grace. What I mean by that is the Holy Spirit spoken of here is God's Spirit, and God is omnipotent. He is sovereign. He does what He pleases. Nothing can stay His hand or say to Him, What are you doing? God accomplishes what He wills. That's His sovereign prerogative. And when I say it's irresistible grace, I certainly do not mean you can't resist it. Did you hear me? Irresistible grace is often uh, laughed out of court by pointing to obvious texts in the Bible that says, we do resist the Holy Spirit. And they're all over the place, right? Acts chapter 7, when Stephen is preaching to the crowds, you hard-hearted, you resist the Holy Spirit every day. And here these this kook, John Piper, who talks about irresistible grace. Well, that's ridiculous. Of course it's not irresistible. Because the Bible says it can be resisted. So stop talking about irresistible grace. Well, no, I'm not going to stop talking about it. Because all it means is whenever God pleases, he overcomes your resistance. He can let you resist him as long as he wants. But when he decides no longer, he triumphs. He did it for me. If you're a Christian, he did it for you. He gets all the praise for overcoming our rebellion. We didn't overcome our deadness and our rebellion and our blindness. He triumphed in our lives. We want Him to get glory for this. We want to know how secure we are in Him. So, He can make Christ look so compelling. That's the way it works, I think. He can make Christ look so compelling that our resistance is broken And we freely come to Him and receive Him and believe in Him. You were dead and blind, rebellious, lover of the world. Whether it was six years old or 26 or 46, doesn't really matter. We were dead. I I happened to be six when my deadness was conquered. And and a six-year-old is just as dead as anybody, and dead is dead. So the glory of my my conversion at my mother's knee in Fort Lauderdale, Florida in 1952 was a glorious moment. I'm not sorry that I don't have to tell any stories about drugs or going to jail or sleeping around before I got saved. I'm glad, and, and I'm glad for those who get saved out of that. But I was dead, and you're dead, apart from what God does then is... Is take the blind, dead soul that has zero spiritual light or interest. And he opens the eyes. And what you see is Christ, no longer as foolish, no longer as stupid, no longer as boring, no longer as disinterested, disinterested, no longer as uh, false you see him as and his cross as compelling and powerful and wise and beautiful and wonderful and and you cannot not receive him that's what it means to see him as compelling that's what i mean by irresistible at that moment your resistance is conquered It was you were resisting God all your life until the Holy Spirit opened your eyes and granted you an irresistible sight, which is why, by the way, you feel so free when you make that choice. You are! Up until that time, you were enslaved. Up until that moment, you were bound and dead and, and in chains of darkness. And He rips the chains off and He opens your eyes and out of freedom, for the first time in your life, you do the right thing. You you embrace Him. He's beautiful. Now, it might help to clarify this a little bit, this sovereign grace irresistible grace, what the Holy Spirit is doing in in raising the dead because He has a free will of His own and it doesn't depend first on us but we depend first on Him. It might help to read you maybe four other passages of Scripture from the Bible that say the same thing. Sometimes that illumines the part we're looking at. So I'm just going to read them to you. You can jot them down if you want or just listen. We'll go to John and then outside of John for for these how many have I got I think I have five. First, John 644 and 65 no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him that's just another way of talking about the new birth no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by my father so I hate to come to Jesus. I'm not coming to Jesus. Jesus is boring and religious, and I'm having a good time. I'm not coming. So I can't come. I, I hate to come, I won't come, I can't come. How, how, how would I come? The Father opens my eyes, draws me. Number two, second text, Acts 13:48. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many as were appointed, this is Acts 13.48, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, which means something preceded and made possible my believing that wasn't me. If my believing were to depend entirely on me or decisively on me, I would not believe, neither would you. Number three, Romans nine fifteen. Paul quotes God, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it is depending not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. That's very close to Romans to John three eight. The wind blows where it wills. You don't know where it comes from or where it's going. I have mercy on whom I have mercy. In other words, God has a will of His own. We don't constrain or control God's will in whom He shows mercy to to overcome their rebellion. He owes that to nobody. I am so rebellious against God if He left me totally alone and in darkness forever, He would do me no wrong. In fact, I wrote this down quick before I came over here if I can remember it. Whether, this is the sentence I wrote, whether you see what the Bible says about your salvation as good news, like John 3, 8, whether you see what the Bible says about your salvation as good news depends in large measure on how hopelessly lost you think you are. If your self-understanding is different than the Bible's, much of what the Bible says about your salvation will not feel like good news. It will feel... We'll get there in a minute. Number four. Just other texts that say the same thing. Philippians 2.12. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you to will and to do his good pleasure. So engage your will, work, pick up your Bible, read, obey, use your will to do right things. Because God is in under that willing and doing, making it possible. You know, those who have believed these glorious truths about the sovereignty of grace in church history have not been passive people. If, If you ever get the notion that people who believe what I'm teaching right now from this verse become passive people, watch us! We go to the nations. We live where it's hard to live We stay up late and get up early to pursue God's will. We are not passive. We work while it is day, for night comes when no man can work. We believe, Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, because not although... Because God is at work in you Because there's this massive initiative Of our great sovereign gracious God inside of us How can we not live with all of our might while we live? So get that out of your head That somehow this truth would produce passive people It never ever has Number five Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, you know this, very familiar. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So yes, you must believe. You absolutely must believe. And you do believe because God grants faith. God enables faith. Faith is the free act of the soul that has been given life and eyes to see the compelling beauty of Jesus Christ. So, John 3.8, here we are back at 3.8, is teaching, along with many other scriptures, that being born again is absolutely necessary and the Holy Spirit is the decisive, ultimate worker in the new birth, and our will is engaged as secondary and dependent. Both are working. When he moves, I'm moving, and if I'm not moving, I'm lost. My will is moving because it is being touched by the movement of the Holy Spirit, and it's moving towards Jesus. So now we we ask in closing, how do you respond to this? This truth that the wind has a will of its own. You don't constrain it. You don't control it. You don't make it happen. You can't any more take charge and make him cause you to be born again than you can make the wind blow. How do you respond to that? How do you feel about that? That's my closing question. there are two main responses, I think. You can see how Nicodemus responded. Verse 9, he throws up his hands and says, how can these things be? I mean, he he listens to Jesus and he just shakes his head like... And Jesus is kind of boggled that a teacher in Israel would not see any more than he does. But here's the encouraging thing, and I'm thinking of you when I say this, chapter 19, verse 39, Nicodemus risks his life to love Jesus in public. The body and the, the 75 pounds of uh, incense or perfume that he's going to use. To, to wrap Jesus up in, in these. So clearly something has happened to Nicodemus. You know, when he came the first time, it was at night. He was, he was frightened. I mean, the man's a very significant Jewish leader. If he, gets, if he gets caught even taking interest in Jesus, he's going to have a hard time explaining himself. And now, at the very moment when he could get killed for this, I'm going with Jesus. So I, I think he was born again. I think Nicodemus got saved, and so maybe some of you are between those two, right? The first, the first time you heard all this, you said, I, just, I don't have a clue what this is. It doesn't make any sense to me at all. You just throw up your hands and say, how can this be? And then three years later, I'm going to see you, and you're going to be laying your life down for Jesus. So... Here are the two big responses, and I, I, I wish, wish we would all be in one group tonight, but I doubt it. Number one, one group of, of people are threatened by verse 8, and another group are thrilled by verse 8. Those are the two categories. Why is it threatening? It's threatening because it takes the new birth out of our control makes us feel helpless I mean absolutely helpless that's what verse 8 does but to others it's thrilling now let me try to unpack in just a closing few minutes why that would be the case why would some of you be sitting there right now feeling very threatened by this verse. And others of you inside are just thrilled with this verse. What? How can that be? How, and here's my sense of what's going on. The first group, the threatened group, says, Don't take away from me the power of my will to make the wind blow. Don't tell me that I am utterly dependent on God's free and sovereign grace to see Christ as my supreme treasure and receive Him as my Savior. This person feels that he or she must have the decisive power of will, the final say to move the Spirit to get them born again. I must have the final say. I must be the decisive cause those people will inevitably feel threatened by verse 8 because it says the opposite that you do not get the final say the Spirit does His will is free and yours is bound until He frees it so the threatened people have a treasure and their treasure is self-determination and they love it. And this verse comes along and threatens self-determination, ultimate self-determination threatens it profoundly and the idol of self-determination begins to feel very threatened. The other group, why would anybody why would anybody feel thrilled Well, I'll tell you why. If the first group is threatened because verse 8 is implying (coughs) they've lost control of the absolute final say, the other group says, I lost that a long time ago i'm dead i'm helpless there is no hope for me if he waits for me if he looks to me to produce something to get him to do this i'm not going to be able to do it i've tried all my life to do what i have to do i can't do anything adequate to god i am a slave of sin I am dead in trespasses and sins. And if there could be a verse that says God is free enough and sovereign enough to just blast through my inadequacies, I would say that's the most thrilling verse in the Bible. That's the difference. The first group is feeling threatened because they are made helpless. And the second group has already been made to feel so helpless they are thrilled that God might be free enough and sovereign enough to break into them and save them. So, um, it's good news. Um, There is a theology that says God um, is necessary to get me where I need to be and he, He nudges me. He nudges me. And then after he nudges me, then I, I cast the final vote and I go or I don't go. The problem is, it doesn't do any good to nudge a corpse. <laughs> if you nudge a corpse, you can get it to church. But you can't make it live. Life is life. Either you're alive or you're dead. Nudging won't won't make you live. He speaks life or he doesn't speak life. So that that won't work. This is good news. John three eight is good news. That's, that's why I went back to my sentence that I jotted down real quick before I came over here. Whether you feel what the Bible says about your salvation, like three eight of John, whether you feel it's Good news will depend in large measure on how helpless and lost and desperate you feel now. And you need to be taught about that because our own sin and, and the devil keep us pretty blind about how desperate we are. They, they don't, we don't know how, how dead and blind and sick we are until we begin to discover it from the Word. So I hope the Holy Spirit is doing that right now for you. So, there's hope for a dead person because of the freedom of the Spirit in verse 8. And I'm very, very happy about that because I feel, even now, so helpless in myself. You you don't ever leave behind the dynamic of sovereign grace, right? Like I get saved with sovereign grace and then now it's me and God and we're kind of 50-50. I produce a lot, He produces a lot. I'm I'm dependent on God every day. That's why the psalmists say, Incline my heart to your testimonies. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things out of your word. Satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love. This is is a saint saying, Even as a saint indwelt by the Holy Spirit, I am reminded every day that in and of my flesh there dwells in me no good thing, and I cannot do anything right without God conquering me daily and helping me put to death the old man so that I I walk in the Spirit. So we're done. Let me close like this. Just at this point, when we're feeling so helpless, Jesus, in the flow of thought, I'm taking you back three weeks to Palm Sunday. Let's call all that up. Just at the point where He reaches the end of His Nicodemus analysis of the inner workings of the spirit and the soul and the freedom and the power and all that and he sees Nicodemus throw up his hands Jesus in unbelievable mercy right now and then shifts gears. Remember? He shifts off of the analysis of our insides like am I born again? Am I born again? And he says no one has ever ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that Nicodemus, anyone who believes in him, will have eternal life. Which means that the way the Holy Spirit brings you to life is not by introspection. Oh, I've got to go home now and dig down inside this crummy heart of mine inside that there's a spark of new birth in there. It won't work. I promise you, I've been there so many years. It won't work. I have dealt with so many people who have trouble with assurance. It won't work. What will work is go to the go to the post lifted in the wilderness and see him. See him. Get out of yourself. See him. Just look and look and look till you have looked your eyes away. Because the function, the purpose of the wind, the, the point of the Holy Spirit is to open your eyes to see the compelling beauty of Christ, sufficient to cover all your sins because He died for them. But He's not going to do that unless you're looking at, the, looking at Him. If you're looking somewhere else and He opens your eyes, you see that. That won't work. Look there. Eyes will go up. And so, if you're wondering, okay, you just said it's impossible for us to be born again apart from the sovereign work of the Spirit, what should we do? And My answer is, the Son of Man was lifted up on the cross 2,000 years ago to pay for all your sins. Look at Him. Look at Him. Look at Him. Until you See. But Father in heaven, we are thankful for John 3.8 and the freedom of the Holy Spirit in our salvation, in our new birth. I pray that everyone would have a sufficient degree of desperation and helplessness so that the news of your freedom, like the wind, will be good news. So come, come, and open our eyes. In Jesus' name, amen.